Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. The following is a Hoop Bowl presentation. Wow! Episodes three and four of The Last Dance are complete, and we are here to talk about them with you here on the Hoop Ball Chicago Bulls podcast. My name is Greg Mraz. I am your host, as per usual. Appreciate you stopping by. We hope that you enjoy this show. We hope that you enjoyed episodes three and four of The Last Dance. Now, we have promised to give you a review our reaction, per se, to each one of these Sunday nights in which we see these two parts of this 10-part series. Last Sunday, it was parts one and two, the intro to the series and getting the background on Michael, and then the Scotty episode. So in parts three and four, we get the Dennis Rodman episode in part three, and then we get the Phil Jackson and the overcoming of the Pistons in part four. So let me start off by saying this. As a 27-year-old, there was a lot that I didn't know about the Bulls coming into starting this podcast. I had always been on the periphery as a Bulls fan. My dad's from Chicago, as you guys may have heard in our intro to the podcast. I grew up watching this last dance team. Granted, I was six years old at the time. I had absolutely no idea what was going on in the background. I was not old enough to really comprehend the history of the team. But now, going back and seeing what this team went through in that last year, and one of the things, and I know I said this last week, one of the things that this documentary does really well is being able to go back into the past and give a background element to what's going on in the present. So we were promised Dennis Rodman in this week's episode. And let me say this. I feel for Dennis Rodman. I honestly did not realize that he went through as much as he went through. He grew up poor. He grew up with a mother that didn't appreciate him. She booted him out of the house, and he went to the one school in southeast Oklahoma State that actually gave him a chance to play basketball. And the one thing that you learn about Dennis Rodman watching this episode, episode three, is that He's a lot smarter than anybody on the outside gave him credit for. He understood, and really it was Chuck Daly that helped him gain that understanding. At least that's the impression that I got. He understood the art of rebounding. Like going through that one sequence in the early 10 minutes of that part three, 
just about how the ball came off the rim, how he was able to deflect it one way, deflect it another way, and understood which way the ball was going in order to deflect it to himself and gobble up that rebound. Watching Dennis Rodman describe how good he was at detecting where the ball was coming off the rim and how he could play it to track down the rebound, that's why he is the best rebounder that ever lived. I mean, you look at the statistics. He had five straight years where he averaged over 15 rebounds a year. He had two years where he averaged over 18 rebounds. I mean, that is insanity. You never see anything like that. And there was a stat that they put up on the screen going into a commercial that Dennis Rodman had seven games in his career where he had 20 rebounds and zero points. Rodman said that he understood that his strength was as a defender and a rebounder. And he did that as well as anybody for those late 80s and early 90s Detroit Pistons. And I think one of the cool things about the story arc of the 1990s Chicago Bulls is the late 80s Chicago Bulls and the fact that these Pistons were this team that the Bulls could not get over the hump against. And yet, it was one of the villains to those late 80s, early 90s Bulls, Rodman, that became a part of their championship core in the late 90s. That's one of the coolest things to me about the entire arc of the Bulls dynasty is that somebody they hated so much, somebody they detested, somebody that Michael probably would have wanted to beat up if he had the chance, welcomed in with open arms in the late 90s because they knew he could help them win a championship. Rodman was damn good during his time with the Pistons, but I think that that incident in the car with the gun that they described that happened, I think it was 92, people realized that he was not a happy person that he was a very troubled person, and that when he went to San Antonio, he started this persona of Dennis Rodman, the flamboyant, outlandish, lots of piercings, lots of tattoos, colored hair, the whole Megillah. That was what he wanted to be. He was comfortable in his own skin. And you saw in that interview that he did with Barbara Walters that he wanted to feel happy. He did the stuff he did because he wanted to feel happy. And if you go back into Dennis Rodman's early life and the rough upbringing that he had, one can understand why he wanted to feel happy. And I don't blame him for it. And as they said, he was a different cat. He was a different animal. And in that 97-98 season, when Scottie Pippen was out, Dennis Rodman felt empowered because he was the number two. He was the guy that Michael relied upon. He was the glue as Phil Jackson said, that kept it all together. When you have somebody that defends as well as Dennis Rodman and that rebounds as well as Dennis Rodman and provides the toughness that Rodman does, that's a glue guy. I mean, when people talk about Draymond Green in the modern day, like Draymond Green and Dennis Rodman are effectively one and the same player. They're very different personalities off the court, but... I think that Draymond Green is the modern-day Dennis Rodman. That's how he plays. And to think about it, Draymond Green, maybe as a really young child, probably grew up idolizing Dennis Rodman, or at least looking back on the tapes of Rodman in his heyday and saying, that's the type of guy that I want to be. A 6'6 guy that nobody respected, but just grinded the hell out of everything that he did. 
And to me, what Dennis Rodman represented is the little guy that wanted to make sure that nobody outworked him. And you saw it. Dennis Rodman, when he was in the gym, worked as hard as anybody. He did like to go out and party because that was Dennis being Dennis. That was Dennis Rodman relieving the stress of being Dennis Rodman. And look, we don't know what Dennis Rodman's mind is made of. It is unique, to say the least. The guy thinks differently than everybody else does. But I come away from this not thinking any less of Dennis Rodman. I think more of Dennis Rodman because we understand where he came from. We understood what his motivation was, and we understand the demons that he had to deal with. And granted, there's a lot of people that have had to deal with the same type of demons and overcome the type of challenges that Rodman had to overcome. But Rodman had that championship success, so he kind of felt like he could flutter around and just be him once he really felt like he could be him. Maybe it was that culture in Detroit that was holding him back. But as Steve Kerr said at the end of Episode 3, they gave him a long leash, and that was part of what Phil Jackson was. Now, this is a good segue to talk about two critical parts of tonight, and I kind of clumped them together. The first part is Phil Jackson. The second part is the Detroit Pistons. So let's start off with the Pistons first because Phil really took up the first half of episode number four. The Detroit Pistons were these bad boys. They were the physical team that you never saw in the NBA and you haven't seen since. You've got the John Sally, Bill Lambeer, Joe Dumards, Isaiah Thomas, these guys that just did not give a rip about what they did. And the fact that they had their quote-unquote Jordan rules, the rules that they had for defending Michael Jordan, for beating up on Michael Jordan, it worked. It 1,000% worked because the Bulls could never get over that hump in the late 80s. And there was a part of Michael that you could just tell while he's doing these interviews. He still has that hatred toward the Pistons. Now, he doesn't have that hatred toward Rodman because he was able to bond with Rodman and become his teammate. The Bulls knew when they picked up Rodman that he could help them win a championship. But I think that seeing what Rodman became after he left Detroit, there's a lot of people in Chicago that can separate Dennis Rodman from the rest of those 80s and early 90s Pistons teams. Now, Isaiah Thomas is from Chicago. So a lot of people were hating on their hometown hero. But make no mistake about it, those Detroit Pistons teams played with a chip on their shoulder. And in a more physical era of the NBA, they beat up on people and they did not care. And they got away with it and they were successful because of it. And I think there was a good perspective that I think it was B.J. Armstrong that put it. The Pistons had to overcome the Celtics to climb to the top of the Eastern Conference. Because as you remember, the Boston Celtics were the dominant team of the 80s in the East. And the Pistons could not get by the Celtics. And when they finally got past the Celtics in 88, that's when they felt like they reached the mountaintop. And then comes 89, and the Bulls are put in the same position that the Pistons were when they had to deal with the Celtics. And the Bulls pushed the Pistons to the brink, but they were not able to get past And then you see the coaching change. You go from Doug Collins to Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson is the Zen master. 
he is somebody that, as the documentary profiles, believed in a lot of spiritual teachings. Phil Jackson was an NBA champion with the New York Knicks. He grew up in Great Falls, Montana. Now, let me tell you something. I have been to Great Falls, Montana many a time. It is a place that is very unique. It is unlike anywhere that you will ever go. It's unlike anywhere you will go in Montana, to be quite honest with you. But I spent enough time in Montana to tell you that Great Falls has its charm. But Great Falls is a lot different than most places you're going to find almost anywhere. So Phil Jackson grew up in a really unique environment. Goes to plays at a small college and goes into the NBA and becomes a two-time world champion. Gets into coaching, but is this free spirit that, that doesn't conform to the ways of NBA culture. And the fact that he doesn't get hired when they bring him in for that first interview and then gets hired once Doug Collins comes in says a lot about Jerry Krause's commitment to bringing Phil Jackson in. And it's surprising that their relationship deteriorated as much as it did, given the fact that Krause wanted to oust Jackson after the 97-98 season. However, the thing that really stuck with me is Tex Winter, and the fact that Tex Winter was really the linchpin of the Chicago Bulls offense and implementing the triangle offense and the brilliance of how it created shots for everybody in different sections of the floor. The rejection of the triangle from Doug Collins, the relegation of Tex Winter to being an afterthought to once Phil Jackson became the coach, Tex Winter coming back in and becoming the focal point of building a brand new offense. And for Michael, that was difficult. You saw it throughout the course of that section of the show that MJ was not comfortable at first running the triangle offense, but somewhat of the assurance that said, we're not worried about you. We want to give everybody else an opportunity to touch the ball. That was the brilliance of Phil Jackson to be able to see something great and find a way to make it better. And I don't think anybody knew at the time how great of a coach Phil Jackson was going to become, but I think what people knew is that Jackson was adaptable. He could take something good and make it great. He could take something great and make it elite, which is what he did with the triangle offense. And one of the reasons why the early 2000s LA Lakers became great is that they put in the triangle offense. And that's what took Kobe and Shaq and that team to the next level. The offense was brilliant, and people don't realize how much a system can define the success of an individual. That's what it did for those early 90s Chicago Bulls teams, and that's what made them as great as they were throughout the decade. Now, a couple of things on that 91 Eastern Conference Finals. The Bulls were tired of getting their brains beaten in by the Pistons, and I think that a light switched on in that game four where Pippen got shoved in the back by Rodman. And Pippen didn't even say a word, and you could see it in the eyes of everybody that talked about it in the documentary. It was over. The Bulls were going to come out and dominate the Pistons for the rest of the game. They had dominated them for the entirety of the series, but they were going to come out and kick their teeth in. And the fact that the Pistons didn't have enough class to shake their hands after the game? I mean, I was not there at the time. But I'm sorry. That's not done nowadays. And when you heard Isaiah Thomas talking about that, and you showed that clip to Michael, 
You could tell he's still pissed off about that. And I would be too. That's not how it's supposed to be done. You're supposed to have a sense of sportsmanship. And they had none of that. Period. End of story. They did not care. They were PO'd that they got their brains beaten in and decided to be classless and walk off the floor. And to me, and any other Bulls fan, that is going to be the lasting image of the late 80s and early 90s Detroit Pistons. That is the legacy of Chuck Daly's crew, the legacy of Isaiah Thomas, the legacy of Joe Dumars, especially because it was his idea, apparently, the legacy of Bill Lambeer. Which, by the way, do you find it funny that they weren't able to get Bill Lambeer to talk in this documentary? Bill Lambeer is a straight-up a-hole. And if anybody disagrees with me on that, you're more than welcome to email me, greg.maraz at yahoo.com. But if you're a Bulls fan, you're probably agreeing with me. Bill Lambeer is somebody that was hated not just by Bulls fans, but by Celtics fans and by Lakers fans and pretty much anybody that played them. So let's move on to the finals of 1991. The Bulls went up against the Lakers, and you see that there's a changing of the guard, that it goes from Magic being the star of his generation to Michael. And Magic had never played Michael on the greatest of stages. And the fact that in Game 5 at the Forum, Phil Jackson realizes that John Paxson is open down the stretch that they were basically telling Michael, drive and dish, and Paxson, who's a great jump shooter, was hitting them all. That was the brilliance of the coaching of Phil Jackson and the willingness of Michael to do whatever it took to win. And you saw Michael in that locker room after the Bulls won that first title, the pure emotion, and the people describing him and saying, we never saw that type of emotion on Michael's face before. We never saw him get that worked up about something because he was always that serious about winning. And what he had put in since he first came into the league to that point, it was the culmination of his success. It was the culmination of all of the work that he had put in over the years to get to that point. The trials and tribulations in the mid-80s, and then trying to get over the hump against the Pistons, and finally reaching the highest of highs. And I think that the episode does a great job at the end of putting into retrospect how difficult that 97-98 season was. So let's take it from a couple of different angles. When Scotty comes back, Rodman goes from being the second alpha, or the beta, you might say, to being another one of the three amigos. And Rodman having to take that 48-hour mental break to go to Las Vegas and party and do whatever the heck he wanted to do. But that was just Dennis being Dennis. Phil Jackson understood that keeping Dennis Rodman happy was going to keep the chemistry of the team together. And you would remember it from the second episode that Scotty wanted out of Chicago. He wanted to be traded because he knew that the whole dynasty was coming to an end anyway. But Pippen backed off and realized that he was going to be able to win that sixth title and decided to back off those demands. He comes back and the Bulls kick it into overdrive. But then they have that February game against the Utah Jazz. And the fact that John Stockton and Carl Malone will their way back against the Bulls to win that game and understanding that maybe it's the Jazz that have the advantage. Maybe the Jazz are the better team and that the Jazz at this point are a stronger team knowing that they're still, relatively speaking, 
on the ascent. Now, granted, John Stockton and Carl Malone, both seasoned vets at that point, but the fact that they had lost to the Bulls the year before and were looking for revenge and smelling blood in the water as the Bulls were nearing the end. And the fact that Jerry Krause, I mean, come on. Like, seriously? You come out with that saying, Michael's going to have to play for somebody else. We want him back. It's his choice. Your team is finally hitting its stride. They're finally getting into their groove. And you come out with that BS? I mean, there's a lot of credit that gets given to Jerry Krause for him building the Chicago Bulls in the way that they were. But come on. Like, you don't do that. If you're a GM, you back off. You just stay the F away. And I think that as we go into Episode 5, we'll understand, number one, how the Bulls responded from that in February and March, and number two, we'll get the introspect of how USA Basketball changed the world's image of Michael Jordan from being the superstar into the global phenomenon. I am loving this series. I am loving talking about it with you. If you have a question or a comment, email them to me, greg.maraz at yahoo.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Greg D. Maraz, that's M-R-O-Z. You can also follow our team Twitter account at the Hoopball Bulls, at Hoopball Bulls, with every word having a capital letter in front of it. You can follow all the rest of the podcasts on the Hoopball Network. Subscribe to this one. Subscribe to all of them. We've got great content, and we are thankful that in this time of no basketball that we, the Bulls fan, have a treat to share with you each and every Sunday. Have a great week, everybody. We hope that you enjoyed Parts 3 and 4. We know that you will enjoy Parts 5 and 6 next Sunday. And I have to say it, as always, Go Bulls! This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big.